episode of EdTech Hour is brought to you by the Educational Psychology Technology Program at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. The Chicago School's mission is integrating the values of education, innovation, service, and community. The Chicago School provides students innovative and practitioner-based learning experiences in which they're able to positively impact others around the world and address issues faced by underserved populations. Through collaboration of university administration, faculty, and students, the EdTech Hour was created in order to pursue our vision of innovation and global outreach. This monthly podcast series will include thought leaders from around the world who will discuss relevant issues centered not only on technology, but also the impact of technology on humanity. Speakers will provide listeners with stories of how they have impacted learners, employees, and communities through the pursuit of understanding how individuals learn and use technology to improve performance. This show provides a global medium to share and promote various issues and developments and learning and how professionals are utilizing technology. By listening to the show, I hope that you are able to develop a unique insight into how you can incorporate similar topics and trends into your own professional settings. I look forward to learning more about our topic with you throughout this episode. Today we have with us Jared Nader, a Director of Educational Technology and an Educational Technology Consultant. And we are going to discuss the integration of 3D printing and the theoretical frameworks that support this process. Hi, Jared. Thank you so much for joining us today. As educators, we're often looking for the newest and shiniest technology tools to bring into the classroom. However, as you have seen in your daily work, there is much more to the integration of technology than just finding a new tool and simply implementing it as quickly as possible, which sometimes happens. It's really important for educators to think through the various aspects of learning and to utilize a theoretical framework to support the need for the new tool. I'm really excited to hear your approach to integrating new technology into the classroom and also learning more about how you specifically do this with 3D printers. But before we get too far into our interview, I would first like to ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners and share your background in education, as well as your research interests in the field. Sure, thank you. So I actually started in the uh, classroom as a chemistry teacher um, about 22 years ago. So um, back in a a day when there wasn't a one-to-one or even a one-to-many in a a classroom of shared carts or a computer lab and that sort of thing for students to be able to access. I started in a one-computer classroom and it was in a in a typical environment where it was the teacher's computer and no one else was allowed to touch it. Well, that mold was broken pretty quickly. I I was uh, one of the uh, first one-to-one colleges and universities in the uh, college that I attended in my undergrad. And so I came from an environment where all of the university students had uh, devices. We all had laptops. And so it was certainly something that I saw the value of and benefit as a undergrad student. And I certainly knew that it was going to be something that was going to be transformative in the classroom as as now the teacher. And so um, I quickly became passionate about the role of ed tech and and technology, not for technology's sake, but technology for learning and um, connected myself with professional organizations that share a similar vision. Uh, I would say that the organization that has molded my pedagogical frameworks more than any is ISTE, the International Society for Technology and Education. And I have served the longest working with them than any other organization, even the schools and uh, current intermediate unit that I work with today. ISTE has founded, and we'll talk about this a little bit later in in the uh, talk today, uh, they founded the international um, standards for technology that are well known across the globe. I get uh, the uh, fortune of, tremendous fortune of serving as a faculty member. Uh, I have served as a science leader and author with ISTE. And um, it really has allowed me to be able to connect with others who share the same passion. Uh, As I've moved through my career, I became, as you had shared, the director of educational technology, both in the school district where I was a chemistry teacher. So that affords itself tremendous opportunity when you you see the things that you'd like to be able to do as a teacher and say, why can't we do that? Well, then it became I needed to be the person that was able to deliver on those things. And then um, later on in my career and where I currently serve now, I serve at, at an educational service agency 
in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, and uh, we are called intermediate units. There's 29 of them um, in Pennsylvania, and I'm um, tremendously fortunate to be able to serve at uh, Intermediate Unit 12, the Lincoln Intermediate, intermediate Unit. Uh, in my current role, I am able to serve 25 school districts, two career and technology centers, and uh, nearly 100 private parochial non-public schools. The total uh, student count in that is over 100,000 students uh, and over 10,000 teachers. So being able to have that uh, level of scope and scale with the impact of the decisions we make in learning with technologies uh, is, is certainly a, a dream of mine. And, and so that's what's brought us, I think, here today. Yes, wonderful. Thank you so much for that introduction, Jared. You you certainly are working with a lot of teachers and students, so that's exciting to get your, your feedback directly from the field. As I shared, I know you have extensive knowledge and expertise in this area, and I look forward to you sharing your experiences with us throughout this podcast. I would like to start our discussion today with an explanation of why learning frameworks are so important to consider when implementing new technology. Can you share with us your experiences and maybe share an example of how integration can go poorly if frameworks are not considered? Sure, I think it comes down to really two uh, primary areas. And, and the first is, and I'll start with more of the anecdotal. Um, technology is, is not a cure. And, and frankly, it's, it's actually a magnifier. And what that magnification is uh, really focusing on is either effective teaching and effective pedagogy or poor choices or um, pedagogy that might not be as sound. And so when oftentimes you see technology being bolted on uh, to a lesson just for the sake of using it, if the lesson perhaps was not as engaging or, or was not something that was pushing students to higher cognitive uh, activities or tasks, technology really isn't isn't going to help to increase that or improve that without thinking about changing that task. And we're going to talk about in a little bit what um, the, the, a framework you can look through to determine how tasks can be transformed with technologies. I'll hold off on that. I think an example, uh, a really good example of this is from when I first started uh, as a technology director. So we're going back a little over a decade ago. Um, the, the newest technology that was coming onto the scene at that time was the interactive whiteboards. And uh, I mean, many of you probably can think of the different name brands of, of whiteboards that exist. Today, we see that transformation into intera interactive touch panels. But they all share a very similar theme in that oftentimes they were born out of not learning or not frameworks for instructional design, but they were born out of either wanting to do a construction project and make sure every single classroom was equipped with an interactive board, or even worse, we have money available, so let's go ahead and buy every classroom a bunch of interactive whiteboards. And so being in the area of professional learning and, and professional educational technology consulting, um, it, it gave us uh, a moment of pause when we were hearing quite a few districts that we were working with say, hey, we bought all these devices, now what? And oftentimes we would walk into, uh, in, especially in situations where they weren't mounted on walls, but rather they were pushed in or rolled in on carts, we would walk into closets and sadly find two, three, four um, interactive boards deep not being used. And, and, and it truly is, is inherent when you don't have professional development that supports the reasoning for why. And, and the why in the case of interactive boards are not simply to allow the teacher to be able to continue standing in the front of the room to digitize their notes. It's meant to be able to get students to get up and be engaged and actually um, you know, manipulate the content that's on the screen. And, and so changing or transforming that, um, the order in which those decisions are made to decide which device or which interactive board in that case was the right one to choose would have been better driven if it were born out of the problem, the educational design problem that you were trying to solve. The second reason why I really believe that uh, frameworks are essential is because of, quite frankly, vocabulary. The area of tech, well, frankly, the area of education alone is, is bountiful with acronyms and, and uh, very 
edu educational jargon speak uh, that someone from the outside may not be familiar with. And so when we think about the, the discussions that need to happen between administrators and teachers, as well as between teachers and parents, we need to make sure that there is a common vocabulary that drives that. And I, I'm gonna talk a little bit about that later as well. And, and without that common vocabulary, it's oftentimes we find that you have teachers who are at one level of comfort, one level of experience, and you have administrators who perhaps maybe never even taught in a classroom that had technology, uh, at least not in a, in a real appreciable way. And the definitions between what effective technology use in those classrooms are may be very, very different. And so what we love about being able to bring everybody together through some common frameworks, and we'll talk about three or four today, um, is, is that it brings everybody to common ground. So that when everyone in the school system, from central office to inside of every single classroom, talks about a specific professional practice and a type of learning that is being evolved or changed as a result of the use of technology, we all know what we're each talking about. So it, it really helps to develop, even among administrators, some really inter-rater reliability, if you will, so that no matter what administrator walks into whatever classroom, they're all gonna leave being able to have a common understanding of what the practice was that was occurring and whether it was something that really was enhancing the learning or if it was something that was really just keeping it the same and just building technology onto a traditional practice. Well, thank you. You um, shared, I actually was speaking with a principal yesterday of a charter school here in Florida, and they received fund, their whole district received funding for this tech-based tool. Uh, it's a great tool, um, therapeutic tech-based tool, but they were never given training. So it's still sitting in the closet that you were referring to. <laughs> so I think it's really important that we have this discussion. Um, with hearing about how important learning and instructional design frameworks are, why do you think schools are often quick to overlook these paradigms and move straight to implementation? Well, I, I know that we didn't stage this because, frankly, you just said you just had the call yesterday. But it's, it's actually somewhat comical because the very first bullet that I have in my notes to talk about here is Funding. <laughs> Oftentimes, I think the, uh, the the quick to overlook the the paradigm is the uh, the answer that you just said. Oh, we just got a windfall, or oh, we just got a grant, or oh, we have some leftover funds in this program, or oh, we just found out our Title One allocation is going to be a little bit higher. So because of that federal program and some of our schools um, actually qualifying, let's go ahead and get X to make sure that we are able to um, supplement the instruction that's occurring there. And so I think the, the, the first element is to not look at what funding is available, but rather uh, identify what, going back to my first uh, response, what's the, the change in practice that we're trying to achieve? Uh, you can't ignore funding. We're all realists, and we all know that if you don't have the funding, it doesn't matter if you have a design framework or not, but you don't start there. Um, the second uh, thing I think really um, does uh, cause a school or a district to overlook it is every single district has what we call pockets of innovation. So much, in fact, that we developed a program here at RIU that's actually called Pockets of Innovation Visits, where I take my tech directors and coaches and network administrators from all of those demographic groups that I shared with you earlier in my introduction, and we travel across our three-county region. And to give you some perspective of geography, the, the coverage area that my IU um, my intermediate unit covers, um, is about the size of the state of Delaware. It's a little over uh, 2,000 square miles. There's a, there are a lot of pockets of innovation going on where inside of individual classrooms or inside of individual buildings, we find teachers, administrators that are guiding uh, programs at scale within their building, or even districts that have really changed personalized learning or career-based learning or STEM-based or STEM-focused learning. And so we try to take our uh, technology uh, leaders to those sites to see what others are doing. Well, I think oftentimes that's why sometimes frameworks are missed 
Because even within the microcosm of an individual district or an individual school, we see some teachers doing these really great things in their context. So we go and they might have access to certain devices or they use the free version of this learning management system. And so what do we do? We just go buy up whatever those teachers that are what we believe demonstrating effective practice are doing without a full comprehensive plan of how are we going to get every teacher there? How are we going to design professional learning to ensure that every teacher is prepared to use the tools that those teachers that are governing or guiding or those administrators that are leading pocket of innovation environments are doing? So I think those two, as I was reflecting on these questions, I really think those are the two, um, I, I would call them almost not false starts, but premature starts um, that often happen in schools. Um, and, and by using that lens of a, of a design framework, it does help. It's not going to prevent it, but it at least insulates it against that occurring uh, as frequently. Thank you. Those are some really great points. Um, as you mentioned, we're going to discuss three or four frameworks that you utilize most often. And we're going to discuss the Stanford University design thinking process, SAMR, which is substitution, augmentation, modification, and redefinition. And then also the International Society for Technology and Education, or ISTE standards, into the K-12 setting. Let's start by discussing the Stanford University design thinking process. Can you share with us a little more about this model and how you best utilize this framework in technology integration? Sure can. So one of the things that um, is the overarching umbrella over all of this, and it's, and it's not so much um, that it is its own framework, but um, th there's something that, in, that educational technology and instructional technology designers use that is called TPAC. Um, TPAC stands for Technology, Pedagogy, and Content Knowledge. And each of those is its own independent lobe. And when, if you think of it somewhat like a, you know, if your mental image right now is thinking of it as a Venn diagram, where the intersections of each of those lobes in the middle ultimately create what we call the sweet spot. Whereas an educational designer, you are focusing on the technology, the pedagogy, and the content together and collectively, and not in isolation. And so the frameworks that you described the design thinking model and the, the SAMR model and the ISSI standards, each of them help to guide or inform educators to be able to look at their instructional design through that larger TPAC lens. And so when we think about the design thinking model, you, you opened up talking about the fact that um, this was going to be about 3D printing. And, and it's funny, we actually, uh, we trick some of our teachers to come to workshops for two days with us by calling it a 3D printing <laughs> workshop. <laughs> now, now I, of course, I say that in, in somewhat tongue-in-cheek. They literally, they do legitimately come and learn how to use 3D printers. And in fact, uh, in the workshop that we, we offer here at RIU, um, they even leave with a 3D printer and are invited six months later to bring a competition team back of students who are given a challenge that day, not before, um, and they have to design their solution, they have to print their solution, and then compete with their solution. Now, I preface this answer with that because that is what describes Stanford University's D-Schools design thinking model. What we want our teachers to be doing is first thinking about what is it that the solution that the 3D printer or whatever the particular technology is, is trying to solve, what is it that is really the problem to begin with. And so the design thinking process is five steps. And we'll talk a little bit about those steps uh, in, in the next few questions. But I think it's important to know that this is an, a, a human-centered approach to problem solving. Uh, I, I was a science teacher. I've already shared that. So the scientific method is my thing, right? State the problem, hypothesize what you think the solution is going to be. but in the scientific world, when you think about that, who is hypothesizing? Often it's the scientist, the engineer. In the design thinking model, what we love about it is it flips it around. It, focus it, it focuses the implementation or the change 
or whatever problem you're trying to solve on the person that you're trying to solve it for. So in that example of how we're using 3D printer competitions, we now, we designed a workshop around teaching the pedagogy that teachers need to develop first before they learn how to use the hardware called a 3D printer. And then we have them go back to their districts or schools, teach their students how to use the technology well, and then they come on site and we actually have them solve a problem that is a real human need. An example is our last competition last spring um, was a uh, solution that the students had to provide that were to augment the use of crutches by students who might have an injury in their school. Oftentimes, they you see it coming around. I know you were a teacher, Aubrey. You see the, the poor kids walking around that broke the leg or twisted an ankle, and they always have to rely on their buddy to carry their book pad, you know, their backpack, carry the elevator key to get up and down the floors. Well, we did the competition with uh, over 40 teams, K through 12. They all had the same rubric, and it wasn't who makes the prettiest looking uh, device. It was truly pragmatic. They had to carry as much equipment or carry as much school supplies as possible. And they each of the supplies got a different had a different point value. And so they really were thinking about it from the alert from the user side, that human centered approach to problem solving. And they had to really think about what is it when I had crutches that I wish I would have been able to do? Well, it was fantastic. Of all the 40 plus teams that were here, um, each division is broken down by grade level, but then we have grand champion overall K to 12 and the second grade team ended up getting second place in the overall competition. And it was because they oh, truly focused on it. It was awesome. It was awesome. And they were simply using the tool Tinkercad. So the seniors who got first place really didn't score that much farther point value wise than the second graders. And those seniors yeah. were using actual CAD software um, that was used at the secondary level and in the professional field. Whereas the students that were in the second grade were using Tinkercad, a free 3D design program. And it just goes to show that it was about the process. Design thinking is about the process you go through to solve that problem for the, for the, for the user. What a great experience for all of your students. That's wonderful. Um, we, you, you mentioned the human side and how important that is in technology integration. So the first step in the Stanford University design thinking process is to empathize. Can you explain how this step is useful when you're consulting with schools or when schools are making decisions for their students? Oh, my word. Yes, absolutely. Well, any decisions you're making in comprehensive planning, strategic planning, uh, anytime you're making decisions that are centered around whatever is going to impact the learner, you need to be including the learner. Uh, and, and in fact, we've we've actually run several workshops here on site where the teachers, we, we actually partner with NASA as well uh, and help. We actually help them uh, think through designing their own maker space as well at the Goddard Space Flight Center. And in the um, NASA workshop that we ran the requirement was you not only had to come yourself, but you had to bring students with you so that the teachers and the students were learning alongside one another. How can you possibly create meaningful learning when you don't think about, you don't have to include the students, or I should say, you don't have to bring, what I'm, please hear me, I'm not saying that you should bring students along to every professional learning event. But what, it, what I think is important is getting the learner's perspective of how that particular strategy is going to impact them in the real world. So empathy um, is, is something that I think you really can will find uh, is, is not just a, a kid thing uh, that struggles. Adults struggle with, uh, with empathy as well. And I'll, I'll, I'll make a, an example here. Um, in order to be able to really have the successful or have uh, the design thinking process uh, realize success, you have to be able to know how to interview. You need to know how to seek to understand and, and not judge what the, uh, the person who you're asking is, is responding, but rather at least try to understand where they're coming from. 
That's how you can truly understand what the need is that we're trying to solve. So a good example of this is we have a, um, an emotional support classroom where I went and I taught them how to use the 3D printer, um, but I also taught them simultaneously the design thinking process. And when you think about emotional support uh, as a disability, uh, oftentimes it is a struggle with seeing any other perspectives and getting away from that egocentric view of the world. So we forced it right down through this 3D printing activity where we had the students uh, working with and, and interviewing uh, other teachers and, and paraprofessionals who work with students with disabilities and specifically disabilities in, in uh, that, that they are um, confined to wheelchairs or other types of mobility devices. And the students that were in the emotional support classroom had to design um, with the 3D printer and the software, had to design solutions that could help make the life of that student who is confined and has been confined perhaps their entire life to a wheelchair, some way that they can improve their quality of life. So now it's not just about, I mean, it's cool that you can go and print something that you thought in your mind, designed it on a computer and printed it. We want to get beyond cool. You can go and print out an iPhone case with your initials on it, and that's cool. We want something to be life-changing. We want something to be so transformative and innovative and entrepreneurial that it shows students, you don't have to be an inventor. You don't have to contact, I'm dating myself here, uh, George Foreman and go, go online and get invent help to be able to get your invention discovered you can truly see students doing this day day in and day out. Just go online and Google 3D printed um, prosthetic hand, and you would find students all across the globe that are designing and printing um, hands, hand prosthesis for students that, or other adults that don't have um, uh, an economical way to uh, replace a hand that they might've lost in an injury or as a result of a disability. Empathy is is an area that I think we lack um, really focusing on in, in the teaching and learning process. And I think design thinking and combined with 3D printing technologies can really help that. And that is, I find that so fascinating. What, what I do, um, part of my my uh, profession is designing coursework at in higher education. And I have started really including and getting students to think through discussion assignments, the impact of technology on social justice initiatives. And just hearing that experience of students designing to help communities who might be underserved, uh, student groups who are needed in this or are in need of this additional support. So that's, that's such a perfect example. So thank you so much for sharing that. I plan to use it in the future as well um, when well, remind, teaching my own students. Remind, remind me when we wrap up today, I have a great uh, YouTube video of a, of a young woman who uh, you did. We, this is a, actually we show this video in every 3D printing workshop that we do uh, that focuses on design wow. thinking. She, she, uh, she traces her day. She's confined to a wheelchair. And from the moment she wakes up uh, through her going to work, going to um, her restaurant for dinner until she gets home, the things that someone that's in a wheelchair from the height of elevator buttons to the height of a fountain to curbsides that aren't cut mm -hmm. for her to be able to actually get down into mm -hmm. to sidewalks that aren't shoveled where she's having to have her sleeves soaking wet with wet snow because people didn't shovel. Mm -hmm. It's amazing when you watch, uh, you know, and you see how, how I, I love that social justice is absolutely the, the overarching mm -hmm. parent theme to it. So yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Yes, and thank you. Thank you for sharing that that example. Um, although the Stanford University design thinking process was designed in a college setting, you've shared some examples, and, and can you further explain how it, it's been adapted for the K through 12 setting? Sure, there's some really great um, resources. If you if you actually go out to the D school, and it's just spelled D dot school, um, there is a actual um, design thinking toolkit that you can download. It's just at dschool.stanford.edu. And there is a, um, it's essentially a teacher's guide, if you will, that allows you to take students through 
Um, you don't even actually have to have a firm expertise on design thinking yourself. Uh, there's a Vimeo video that comes with it that it's about, it's a little over an hour long. So you might have to do it across a you know, one or two class periods where um, students use the design thinking process to redefine the gift, gift the gift giving experience, and it's really a, a way to take the take the learning of the process out and away from content, so that they can solely focus on something they're familiar with, gift giving, and really focus on how to apply the thinking, the design thinking process to that situation of trying to redefine what I think many of us probably experience, which is the often stressful and, and often unsuccessful process of buying gifts for people. Um, and so by removing it from um, the, the classroom where the stress of learning how to um, learn a content area at the same time, it really helps focus on why design thinking is so important and valuable. And it's not applicable I'm not going to say that we're using design thinking in every single element of instruction, but it's a great, if you're going to be using 3D printers for design, it's a no brainer to use the design thinking process combined with um, an, an anticipatory um, activity of the design thinking toolkit um, that, these, that the D school does provide. Well, thank you for that discussion of the uh, Stanford University thinking process. You also shared that you utilize the SAMR model. Can you share with our listeners the components of the SAMR model and how it can be utilized to integrate 3D printing into the classroom? So I don't know how, and I, I know that there's probably some educational technology experts that may be listening to this as well that may say that, you know, perhaps SAMR sometimes has gotten a bad rap. And, and, I, and I can't um, stress enough the importance of understanding how its, it's originator, Ruben Quintadera, is a researcher that developed um, the SAMR model, how important it is to understand, and, and again, me not being him, but me uh, doing enough research into the model, knowing it was so often, it is so often used uh, in, a, in a method that, or a, for a reason that it was never intended to be used. So SAMR talks about the transformative uh, the SAMR model, I should say, um, is, a, is a lens through which um, the technology that is used is able to enhance or transform the task that students are engaging in, in their learning design activities. And unfortunately, in, in this uh, world that we live in in education, where everything is focused around either being um, proficient or advanced, meaning you're above the line, or basic or below basic, where you're below the line, um, it, it sometimes gets a stigma, it meaning SAMR, sometimes gets a stigma of being evaluative in a way that says that if you are below the line, in other words, if you're in the S, which is substitution, where technology serves really as just a direct substitute for what the students were doing without technology, that that is equals bad. And R, which is on the other end of the model, which is redefinition, where that implies that you couldn't otherwise have had students engage in that task without the technology, that that equals good, placing those evaluative or value-based implementations of technology onto the use of this tool was never how it was intended to be used. Or I would say, I don't think you can at all get the rich benefit of SAMR if that's how you are um, viewing it to be used. And so as you look Look at the SAMR model where S is substitution and A is augmentation, where there's a functional improvement by using the technology, but it's still a, the similar or same task. And then when you go above that kind of line of demarcation where you're now, and those, by the way, S and A, the substitution augmentation, um, are really what we call enhancing strategies where the technology enhances the task to above the line where we're saying modification, where now the task is appreciably redesigned um, with new and, and, um, and, and richer uh, engaging um, activities, this is where we get into what's called the transformational 
era, where we can see technology transforming the task. So when we think about 3D printing, I could absolutely see a 3D printer being used at all four levels of the SAMR model. And it doesn't mean that using SAM or using the 3D printer as a substitution for something you would have already done. And let me give an example to that. Let's say um, students could design a ruler to measure as they're, let's say they're learning about um, scale and learning about increments. You might as an activity to teach younger students, let's say third grade students, you might as an activity have them cut out a strip of um, cardboard stock and you might have them hand write a, a brand new, if they were going to invent a brand new um, unit of measure, how would they design the scale and the increment? Well, you can use a 3D printer and have them do the exact same thing and it would be serving as a direct substitution. Or it could be augmentation because it's now more rigid, it would now perhaps be more durable, and therefore the product itself that's made might actually be a better product. Or you could actually take that activity all the way to another end where you're having the students design uh, the examples that I gave earlier that help change the really transform the life of a disabled um, student. And they could never have done something like that without a tool that could create a new product that would be durable, that could be threaded, that could be mounted to the wheelchair, and so on. So every one of those examples are good examples of using 3D printing. It's just important as the designer to know what does it do? How is the tool changing the task that the students would have originally done? Where this, and I talked a little bit earlier about vocabulary. This is your first vocabulary piece with administration. If we walk into that classroom where the students are taking their normal cardboard activity and simply making it out of a 3D printer, and the administrator looks at that and says, oh my gosh, that's mind-blowing. That's the most redefined activity I've ever seen. I can't believe they did that. Well, there's clearly a a divergence in understanding how that technology transformed the learning. Because to the student, they're probably not doing really much different in designing the ruler using a CAD program versus designing the ruler by drawing it onto a piece of cardboard. So understanding how the technology is being used to transform the task, that's what SAMR is all about. And it allows you to really start thinking about starting to get, not every lesson is going to have technology being able to mobilize the task all the way to redefinition, nor should you be expected to have technology being used at the redefinition, or at least at the very least, the modification, redefinition, transformational side. However, it gives you a goal to try to see how the technology is being used to improve learning and improve engagement. And that's really what we wanna see by using the SAMR model. Thank you, that was very interesting. I, of course, you know, we, we focus on the importance of engagement. So I appreciate you covering that and the different angles of SAMR. Um, I would like to now touch briefly on the ISTE standards and what guidance, I know you work with them closely, um, what guidance does ISTE provide for the integration of new technology, specifically 3D printing? And can you share with us your experiences using ISTE standards to integrate new technology? Sure. So we could do an entire, uh, don't panic here. I was, I'm, I'm, I'm of course joking when I say we could do an entire hour on just the ISTE standards alone. Um, I promise you, I will be, I will be brief. Um, the, the ISTE standards are, um, are quite different uh, in terms of when we think about uh, how they are used uh, with regards to technology. If you were to read them, and I know this is going to be a, as brief of a primer as possible about what the ISTE standards are for those folks that may have never heard of them. Uh, if you just simply go to istestandards.org or iste.com rather, um, sorry, iste.org slash standards, there we go, um, you'll be able to actually access them. There are seven student standards, and what they are is essentially identities. 
unlike SAMR, where you are looking at the transformative impact of the technology on the, um, the actual practice. And remember, going back to TPAC, using SAMR is great to talk about the pedagogy lobe of TPAC to how we can essentially enhance the pedagogy that we are already practicing using the tool. With the ISTE standards, it's really focusing on your content and curriculum and how you are going to develop digital age skills within the students. So much, in fact, that they become the identities of the learner. So very quickly, I'll, I'm just going to list through you to describe for you the seven ISTE standards. But when you think about them, think about them not as, as standards or as skill, skills, but rather think of them as the identity of the student. They begin with empowered learner, digital citizen, knowledge constructor, innovative designer, computational thinker. Hopefully you're hearing 3D printing all through this. Creative communicator and global collaborator. Every one of these seven standards have a standard statement that defines what they are. That's your teaser. Go out to isti.org and look them up yourselves. And each has four performance indicators or standard indicators that describe the look force of what a learner who is demonstrating that identity should be able to reveal by the time they graduate. They're aspirational, they're graduation standards. And so if we are trying to see how the task, think about SAMR again, is being transformed using a tool like 3D printing, what we are then looking at is, okay, what are the identities that we're trying to teach students to acquire through the content that's why the ISTE standards marry so well with the content lobe of TPAC. So for example, if we want students to be thinking about um, and using a 3D printer, we'll just keep in that, the, that, that common technology theme. If we want students to become knowledge constructors, then we want them to be innovative designers. And we know that our content, um, let's say in a social studies class, is focusing on a particular era and that era might have been the Industrial Revolution. Well, maybe in hindsight, what we want to do is have students now in the 21st century look back to the original assembly line and describe and construct a component of the assembly line that could have been revolutionary if a 3D printer had existed. Design it, print it, and actually then do some type of presentation on maybe create a commercial if TVs existed during the Industrial Revolution or a podcast, create something to market it. Think about all of those, those, those standard areas that I talked about, and not the least of which is entrepreneurism, which really is a kind of a, a, an, an envelope over all, all seven of them. Think, think about how that really changes the lens of teaching the traditional Industrial Revolution. It really creates that hook for students to develop the skills they need for, to be successful in college and career readiness, as well as to be able to use technology of modern contemporary technology of 3D printing to actually do it. Well, thank you, Jared. As a former history teacher, I really appreciate you sharing those examples. Um, just so interesting, so fascinating, all the different opportunities um, teachers are, are coming up with for their students. So I'd like to spend our remaining time focusing on 3D printing itself, as this is a new trend we are seeing pop up in both K-12 and in higher education. Can you share with us, you've already shared so many examples, but is there any other examples you'd like to share and how you're seeing this trend being utilized and ways that teachers can incorporate this technology into their own curriculum? So there's two primary ways that I see, tech, I see 3D printing um, being utilized. And I think it really comes down to, in some cases, uh, vision uh, for the particular school or, or district. Um, it also, I mean, as a realist, uh, I know that there is unlikely to be uh, resource available. Although one of the things I think if, if, you know, certainly this is not a 3D printing purchasing guide 
Uh, and and we, we in all of our workshops, and you've noticed hopefully in this talk today, that um, we, we try to be device agnostic. But one of the things that I can't stress enough when looking at making this type of technology more accessible to more teachers is that you do not need a $3,000 3D printer to be able to utilize 3D printing in your classroom. In fact, when we designed our workshop um, for our teachers, we specifically designed it so that our teachers could walk away with a $200 to $300 device, something that while the resolution is perhaps not quite as good as what you would see from a $3,000 device, it, and it may not be able to print objects that are the same size as something that comes from a more expensive printer. I hope what we've, I, I hope what I've been able to stress in the, um, the entire discussion we've had today is that really the 3D printing is the last thing. It's really focusing on developing the skills that we've talked about and using the lenses that we've talked about that are important through this. And so when I talked about two kind of areas that I see 3D printing being used most, the first is I'm seeing a lot of our, and again, we work with a lot of school districts. I'm seeing a lot of them developing uh, you know, the cliched makerspace. And that makerspace being very thoughtful and very deliberately designed to include 3D printing technologies that are not directly connected or assigned to any one class or any one teacher. What that really does is it creates opportunity. It's fantastic. You go into those makerspaces in the morning, you go in after school, you go in at lunch, and there's students filling those spaces with really just a classroom assistant or someone who doesn't necessarily have to have the expertise. You could even have, and I've noted, I've, I've noted that in quite a few implementations, um, the school districts are actually housing their student-run technology help desks in there so that students that are struggling with their or having a problem with their one-to-one -one device can go to the makerspace or to go to wherever their learning center is where the student help desk is located. And that's also where they then house the technologies like laser engravers, laser cutters, 3D printers, um, all of the different robotics and um, Arduino. And you could, we could go on and on and on of the other technologies that are there. So that's kind of implementation number one, where it's more of a, a, a centralized space in the facility where um, very much more like co-share spaces are popping up in business for companies to go drop in and use collective resources that are made available. That's, that's one way. Another way that I'm seeing, as I've described, are the actual classroom embedded device. And that's what I, truly, if you want to see the technology being used most regularly, it's why one-to-one -one, we've got, we went from computer labs where technology became, was an event. You had to sign it out or you had to go to a special, uh, I'm sure Aubrey, you probably remember that those days, um, to one-to-one -one by classroom where a cart of devices may have been rolled in, whether they were iPads or Chromebooks or laptops to now every student has a device. And, and that's where we really are starting to see a lot of um, schools moving, where maybe the 3D printer isn't in every single classroom, but there's at least a 3D printer on every floor or in every uh, team where there might be a subject uh, area teams where they're all located in a similar region. And so it gives that ability for those teachers to be able to design instruction and know that they're going to have access to the tool, access to the device. That's the most important part. There's nothing worse than designing, designing a great activity or a great lesson and then not having access to the device. And I think the paradigm that has to be broken for so many is that they don't need, 3D printing is, is, it can be very affordable. They don't need to buy a very expensive device in order to, to use it in many of the common um, integrative areas within certain content areas. And then the second way of using the technology for 3D printing is actually in high-level computer-aided computer design classes. This is where I am seeing the higher-level um, printers because what's great about 3D printing, and we really didn't get into even talk much about the printers themselves, you can print plastics, you can print graphite materials or graphite-strengthened materials, you can 
actually even print. When we work with NASA, they have uh, they utilize a service, actually. Even they don't have a 3D printer, at least they didn't when we work with them. You, you can actually print metal. And so they were actually printing titanium-based objects off of a 3D printer. In milling, it's a subtractive technology where you're you're essentially grinding away for a uh, lack of a, a more tech uh, all of my cnc teachers are probably um would be screaming right now if you're listening to this but where you're essentially grinding away at a block of material you there's certain things you cannot do there's places you cannot get to there's certain um design shapes that you cannot build whereas with a 3d printer it's an additive design where you're adding material to nothing essentially um, that's completely revolutionizing how designers are building and engineering products. And so that's a completely high level, very different area even of the school. Oftentimes we're seeing those built out or born out of the old, you think of your old shop wing or your old industrial arts being transformed into 3D design in computer-aided drafting and computer-aided design curriculum. And so those are the two primary lobes where we're seeing technology like 3D printing being used most often. Well, thank you so much. There, there's just so much to cover. And unfortunately, we're running out of time, but I want to close with, uh, if you could provide our listeners there's a, if they'd like to hear more, a way to contact you. And if you have any other closing comments on 3D printing or anything we've discussed today. Sure. Certainly they can reach out to me at my email address, and that's just jpmader at iu12.org. J is in Jared, P is in Paul, M-A-D-E-R at iu12.org. Uh, there's just a tremendous number of resources that are out there. And in fact, if you search for my name and 3D printing, you'll actually even see a few uh, journal articles that are already out there that could help you get started. More specifically, thinking about what are some of the device considerations that you want to make when you're choosing or selecting your 3D printer. I think that most importantly, if there's nothing else that you've, uh, you've not left with today, it's that it shouldn't start with the device. Um, whether the design thinking process is the uh, model that you use, or there's several really excellent um, engineering design uh, processes. Or if you're at the elementary level, um, there's, a, there's actually an elementary design process. Again, simply Googling does a, is a great way to, to be able to find those things. But using some type of design process is paramount. It doesn't have to necessarily be what we discussed today, just the fact that you are starting with a process that requires your students to ask and become more human-centered about why they are actually using that 3D printer for improving learning or improving um, an experience for someone else. So hopefully that's the, uh, the, the, take, the big takeaway that, that your uh, listeners were able to hear today. And uh, please don't hesitate to reach out. Also, as we often are building and designing different workshops around uh, design thinking and 3D printing, if you have some great ideas of things that you've done, uh, we'd love to hear about them. I'd love to be able to integrate some of them into our own workshops to share with other teachers um, how uh, different content-specific area teachers are using technology in their classrooms. Well, thank you so much. I learned so much from you. I think that our, our listeners did too. So interesting to see all the different ideas and things that are happening with 3D printing, but also like you said, that the device shouldn't be the primary uh, focus. Um, you know, just learning about those frameworks that support the successful and beneficial integration into the classroom for learners and, and for teachers. Thank you for listening to this edition of EdTech Hour. I'm Dr. Kelly Torres, the Department Chair of the Educational Psychology and Technology Program of the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. This podcast was completed through the support of our dedicated faculty, staff, and students. To learn more about the Educational Psychology Technology Program, or if you're interested in being on the EdTech Hour podcast, please reach out to me at ktorres at the chicagoschool.edu.